Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to spend two weeks in some maybe what seems like strange verses for you, the genealogy of Jesus, but I think it's going to be good because Jesus has a story, right? Matthew chapter 1, let's read verse 1 through verse 17 together and we'll be right back here next week. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abihah, and Abihah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shittil, and Shittil, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Akim, and Akim, the father of Eliud. And Eliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Methan. And Methan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, what a humbling realization it is to realize that we are in the presence of the great I Am. Lord, I think through my week, and to be honest, it has not been a good one. I have lost my cool more than one time. I have had many opportunities to display faith and have shown unbelief in virtually every single one of them. I've sinned. I have rebelled. I have defied, I have frustrated, I have robbed you of glory. And now I am aware that I'm in your presence. Father, I know that I don't stand alone and feeling just the fullness of my weakness in your presence, the total need for your scandalous grace in my life so that I might be able to do anything of any consequence for anyone. And so, Father, my prayer is that today we would taste your grace new. That, God, we would walk in the realization of your presence before us, but even more so with the awareness that we have been covered with the righteousness of Jesus that we can approach your throne boldly because we do not come on our own accord. We come through Christ who has been raised up for us. And so, Lord, this morning I have nothing to say. But, Lord, I pray that you do. Speak to us. Let us hear from you. Let us be convicted of our sin. Let us walk in fresh hope in this Advent season. We ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So many of you gathered around the family table this past week, probably all of you gathered around the family table this past week for Thanksgiving. And you know what I've come to realize about the holidays is the holidays are a great opportunity for us to be reminded of just how crooked our family trees are right? 
And some of you, you're thinking, you know, I don't really think my family tree's all that crooked. We're actually above average. You're the crook in the tree, buddy. You're the crook in the tree, if that's what you think. I, I was really reminded about this uh, a few weeks uh, earlier this week. You know, it's also a time when we begin telling family stories and, and kind of talking about our ancestors and all those kinds of things. And this past week, I got to go to lunch with, with Josh Hale. He's a new member of our, of our church family. And what we've realized is that we're actually related by distance. My great-grandfather and his grandfather were brothers. And so I've learned that he's done like all this Ancestry.com background and researched our family history. I've never done that. I've always been afraid of what I would find out. And he's kind of justifying my excuse. So we were at lunch this past week and we were talking about the family history and some of the research that, that he had done. And we have a Creek Indian ancestry on my dad's side of the family. And I'd always heard that. And so I asked him if he had seen anything about that. And he said, yeah, it actually comes up a, a couple of different times. But where it all started was it, it boiled down to one of two men. And the, the records were not great, but he knew it was one of two, two Creek Indian men. And he had to make a decision and figure out which one it was through investigation. The first man, which he thought it was, was a man who was apparently a tribal chief. And so he would, and he actually negotiated on behalf of the tribe with the English settlers at the time and was a famed warrior. And I thought, man, now that's what I'm talking about. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I want in my heritage. I want warrior, Creek Indian chief. Like, that would be pretty awesome to say. But he said, turned out that's not the guy. Turned out it's not the guy. There was one other guy that they had the same name. It turns out it was him. And this particular guy was preparing to go and to be a warrior in battle as well. But before he went into battle, he went to see the old tribal witch doctor. And while he was there visiting with the tribal witch doctor, the witch doctor cast a spell upon him, which apparently was supposed to render him invisible for battle. And so this yokel decides not to test out whether or not he's actually invisible, but to run headlong at the front lines in battle, assuming his invisibility, and he is immediately struck down. And I thought, that's my people. <laughs> that's my people. And it doesn't even get any better on my mother's side. We were telling these stories at Thanksgiving last year or the year before on my mother's side. And uh, we have a, like a family historian on that side of the family. He had sent out all this information. And what we found out is like my great-great-grandmother on her side was a madam at a brothel in Piedmont. <laughs> That's my people. And you know what, what's funny is, is probably for most of us, if we went back in our family trees, those are the kinds of discoveries that we make, right? That the tree is not quite as straight as we wish that it was. And in fact, probably our great-grandkids and great-great-grandkids are going to look back to us in this generation and think, goodness, gracious, alive, that's my people, right? And what's extraordinary is that in the Bible, what we have, the family tree of Jesus. And in the family tree of Jesus, what we find out is that Jesus' family tree is just as crooked as my family tree. And that is the upset of all upsets, right? In fact, Jesus' family tree, probably whoever here wins the contest for having the, the most crooked family tree, Jesus probably outmatches even you in terms of his family tree. And the Jews would have kept uh, meticulous records. And so Matthew is here, and Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, and he's wanting to establish Jesus as the Jewish Savior. And Matthew would have been an expert as a tax collector on family history and genealogy. And so he uses that skill, and he employs that to show how far back Jesus's family tree went. But these are not just names on a page. Each name is meant to trigger in our minds a story. Each name is meant to trigger in our minds all of the stories and all of the people that have been contributors within the providence of God to bring us to the particular place that we come in Matthew chapter 1 where the world is awaiting its Savior, the world is awaiting its King, the world is awaiting its Messiah, and here He is as a result of all that God has done across the generations and across the ages through a crooked ancestry to bring us to a moment just like this. 
And the reason that I want us to spend two weeks in the genealogy is because what the genealogy helps us to remember is that the old and the new are bound together with one another. That the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament are linked together. And they are linked together by the series of stories through whom God worked to bring us ultimately to the point that we get to when the virgin gives birth uh, from, with, with the Son of God. Now, as we're reading these stories, Matthew is presenting it in a particular way. And he's presenting it in a particular way so that we will ask certain questions. We're going to look this week at the first thing that stands out to me about this. So the, the Jews were, like I said, they were famous for giving their genealogies. But if you know much about Jewish culture, it is a patriarchal culture, right? And so within a patriarchal culture, the typical way that you would give a genealogy is by saying the dad, the dad, the dad, the dad, right? The father of the father of the father of the father of throughout. And in fact, that's what we see in Matthew chapter 1. There's 40 male names that are given, but in the midst of 40 male names, there are five women that stand out in the genealogy of Jesus. And it can't be that Matthew includes these five women within the, the genealogy of Jesus in this Jewish context, writing to a Jewish audience that Matthew didn't want us to stop for just a second and say, why in the world are they included? What is so remarkable about these women. And what is ultimately remarkable about them is that they are some of the most notorious women, infamous women throughout the scripture that, they, that God finds them in places of brokenness and God finds them in places of sinfulness and God finds them in places of suffering. But God works through that sinfulness and God works through that suffering and God works in the midst of that brokenness to ultimately crescendo his story with the son of man who has come to save the world. So I want us to look at the five women, and I'm going to have famous paintings of each one that will be up here, and so you can kind of place a, a name with a face. The first person that we're, we're introduced to there is probably the one that you're least familiar with, and you'll find her name there in verse 3. Judah, the father of, of, uh, of I'm sorry, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So what we have here is a picture of Tamar with Judah. And you'll find Tamar's story primarily in Genesis chapter 38. It is one of the most rated R chapters in all of your Bible. It's not a great go-to for family devotionals. You know what I'm saying? Like it gets it gets a bit racy uh, there in Genesis chapter 38. But we're introduced to a woman by the name of Tamar. We don't know a ton about her heritage, but it seems as though Tamar would have been a Canaanite, that she was likely a pagan worshiper that was brought into the family of God, not by the design of God, but by, his, by her ultimate marriage to Ur, the eldest son of Judah. Now, what you have to understand is this story was broken from the beginning. Judah had his son Ur already as a result of a promiscuous relationship that never should have been. And Ur goes and he marries this woman named Tamar. And it says that her as a young bride is married to this young man, but the young man Ur does evil in the eyes of the Lord and the Lord strikes down Ur. Well, Judah had a second son. He had a, a second son by the name of Onan. And Onan is given by Judah to Tamar in marriage so that he could conceive a son with Tamar to preserve Ur's name for the generations that were to come. But Onan is bitter over his brother's death, apparently, and he refuses to conceive a son with Judah, an act that the Bible says God views as an abomination, something that is unjust toward Tamar, something that is, that is evil toward Tamar. And God strikes down Onan as a result of his injustice and his mistreatment of Tamar. Well, Judah, at this point, he's thinking that this woman must be one of the Clintons because everybody she's friends with just disappears. You know what I'm saying? Y'all like that, didn't you? I came up with that this morning. I thought you would like that. Because everybody is disappeared. And so Judah's like, fool me once, 
Shame on me. Fool me, or shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on you. But you are not going to get child number three. And he refuses to give his third son over to Tamar so that she might be married. And so now Tamar is treated unjustly, and she's excluded from the family. And she has no one that can provide for her. And she has no way to be able to, to share in the covenant blessing. Vers, virtually everything that could go wrong in Tamar's life has went wrong. She has been widowed twice. She has now been abandoned by her father-in-law and she is left to nothing but begging well Judah decides he's going to go on a journey to Timnah and his promiscuous ways flare up again and on his journey to Timnah he decides that he's going to find himself a cultic temple prostitute and and Tamar becomes aware of this and she dresses herself up as a temple prostitute which would have included the full covering of her face and she goes and she encounters Judah on his, in his pursuit of soliciting a temple prostitute. And he ends up soliciting her, but he has no means by which to pay him. And so he takes his ring and his cloak and some other things and he, and he gives them over to her. And continues on his way saying that he will send something to pay later. He sends, but she, she takes off the disguise and no one can find the cultic prostitute. And they say there's not been one around and so he's unable to pay. But turns out that through this encounter, Tamar becomes pregnant. Word begins to spread throughout all of the community as words do. These were small communities and these were communities that were largely built on a, on a common ethic, a common morality. And word begins to spread that the, that the daughter-in-law of Judah, the, the, the proud patriarch of Israel, has come up pregnant. And Judah's response? Burn her to the ground. Burn her to the ground. Tamar hears of these things and she takes the personal belongings that Judah had given to pay her for her solicitation, for her promiscuity. And she has them sent over to Judah and she says, Judah, it is by the man who left me these, the man who has given me this, that I have become pregnant. And Judah shreds his clothes and says, woe is me, this woman is more righteous than I am. And she conceives a son, twin sons, Zerah and Perez. And through Perez, a promise is fulfilled. You see, God had long ago made a promise that through the tribe of Judah, the scepter would descend and the scepter would not depart. That is, that the king, the kingly line would be established from the tribe of Judah. And from the tribe of Judah, the, the, king, the kingdom would expand and the throne would be established. And through that throne, the people would be protected and delivered and saved. And who is it? Who is it that God uses to mother this line? He uses a woman named Tamar, a Canaanite woman, a woman that had been abandoned, a woman that had been widowed, a woman that had been mistreated, a woman that had been judged self-righteously, a woman that had been all but forgotten in the world. He uses her in her name. Her name's on the list. The second woman that we see is a, a woman that you're probably more familiar with. You read about her story in Joshua chapter two. It's the woman named Rahab. Rahab was also a Canaanite like Tamar. And there's a, a theme I want you to hold on to there, but there's a, she also was a Canaanite like, like, like Tamar and she lived there in the city of Jericho. And so the people of God are coming and God is giving them over the, the promised land that they might come and take down the walls of Jericho and inhabit the land of promise that God has given to them. And you'll remember that, God, that, that God's people send in two spies ahead of them to go and to scout out the land to see exactly what's happening there in Jericho before the great battle. And the, the two spies end up on the run from people that are pursuing them and become aware of them. And they, they land at the tavern that is operated by a woman named Rahab who is herself a prostitute. Are you seeing the theme here? A prostitute. Now, she was a little bit different from Tamar, and nobody was surprised to find out that Rahab was living a life of promiscuity. This was, this was her life. This was her well-being. She, she operated this every day, and she would have been infamous and renowned among the townspeople as being one who was famously promiscuous. She would have brought shame upon her father's house. She would have had shame associated with her own name. And yet, this is the house in which God sends two of his spies so that they might ultimately be protected. 
And so she goes and she begins to have a conversation with these two spies that end up there in her tavern. And she begins to explain to them how the reputation of the Lord has preceded them in travel. In fact, they know, they know that this God is greater than all of the other gods because they've heard about what has happened in Egypt. They heard about how the plagues came against the Egyptians, how, how God's army had been able to conquer the mighty Egyptian army and how the Red Sea had collapsed in on Pharaoh and all of his mighty chariots in of the day. And they knew that this God, Yahweh, was greater than their God and all of the other gods and that they ultimately were trembling as a people before his sight. So this is what she resolves. Hebrews remembers this as being by faith, by the way, by faith. She realizes that her life, her future, her well-being is ultimately what Yahweh says it is, what the Lord determines it to be. And so she says, if you will remember me, if you will remember my father's house, then I will hide you and I will cover for you and I will make sure that you are able to be preserved in the midst of Jericho with all of these, preser- all of these pursuers. And so she takes them up onto the roof of her house where the flax is there sunning in the sun and she hides them beneath all the branches of flax. And as the pursuers come into her house looking for the spies, she tells them, well, they may have been here earlier, but they're not here now. You need to go outside the walls of the, of the city. And they, she sends them outside of the walls and she holds the spies with her until she can ultimately send them a different way that they could evade the people who were trying to strike her down. And God, people march around the walls of Jericho seven times and the walls come crashing down and it's a rout and the ban is against the people of Jericho and every Canaanite, every man, woman, and child is there slaughtered and destroyed except for one family, the family of Rahab. The Bible says that Rahab doesn't remain as though a Canaanite all of her life. She is integrated within the covenant people of God and she becomes the wife of Salmon and she is ultimately in the line of Boaz. It calls her the mother of Boaz, even though she wouldn't have been the direct mother of Boaz. And do you remember who Boaz is in the story of Ruth? Boaz is the redeemer. And so here's this prostitute, Rahab, who had lived a life of insidious sin, who had lived a life that all of us would have looked down our noses upon, who would have lived a life at deserving rightfully the judgment of God to come and to fall upon her. And yet in the line of Jesus, her name is on the list because she is the mother of the Redeemer. Brings us to the third woman, a woman by the name of Ruth. Woman you all ought to be quite well acquainted with from our series through the book of Ruth. I don't think Ruth would have been white quite like this, but that's the depiction nonetheless. Ruth was a Moabite woman. She had married into a family and at a young age, her husband dies. See, she was not like the other ladies on the list. The other two ladies on, our, on the list, they were known for personal promiscuity. They, they had personal sexual sin in their life. We know of nothing of the sort with Ruth. In fact, the book of Ruth upholds her virtue as being the Proverbs 31 woman, the, the woman of virtue for all of Israel to look to. But, but what we do know is that as a Moabite, she was the product of, of, uh, of sexual promiscuity. That if you go and you read Genesis chapter 19, you have Lot there. And Lot in a drunken stupor has an incestuous relationship with his eldest daughter. And the Bible tells us that this is what led ultimately to the Moabites coming to be as a people. And the Moabites worshipped a patron god by the name of Chemosh. And Chemosh demanded all types of perverse offerings to himself, including cultic prostitutes and even child sacrifices. They were seen as the worst of the worst by the Israelites. They were, they were despicable people in the eyes of Israel. And so it says in Deuteronomy chapter 10 that they are not to be welcomed into the house of the Lord to the 10th generation. That Israel is not to even eat or dine with one of these Moabites. That's her heritage. That's her story. But her story is not just one of a sexually promiscuous heritage. Her story is one of great personal tragedy. Do you remember about Ruth? So she loses her husband at a young age. You can imagine, she's fresh out of a wedding. She, she has all of these long-term plans and all of these long-term aspirations and all of these long-term dreams. 
all of which are dashed in an instant in the death of her husband. Her husband's brother, he dies. There is no one there. Her father-in-law, dead. There is no one to provide for her. There is no one through whom she can provide an heir. There is no one that can take care of her. She's an apparently barren woman. And then she leaves and goes with Naomi into the place of Bethlehem to a land that she's not familiar with outside of her father's house. And it appears that through great personal tragedy, living as a despised race in a new land, alone with a widow woman named Naomi, what hope did she have except there in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of her heritage, God finds her there. God finds her there. And he finds her there with a redeemer by the name of Boaz. And with Boaz, Boaz redeems her. But Boaz, if you'll remember in the story, is not the ultimate redeemer. The ultimate redeemer comes through the son that they have together. And through that son, it says that they are going to be raised or resurrected to life. See, that son was a man by the name of Obed. And Obed would have a son by the name of Jesse. And Jesse would have a son by the name of David. That here is Ruth, a Moabite woman, a woman who seems long discarded and forgotten all about, a woman who has endured suffering, who is the result herself of sin, who has a checkered heritage and a crooked family tree with skeletons in the closet. And here she is, and she is used as the one through whom God will establish the throne that his son will one day sit upon. Oh, a miracle of miracles. Her name, her name's on the list. Her name's on the list. The fourth lady that we see on the list is not even given to us by name. Look at verse 6 with me. Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon, and here, here she is, by the wife of Uriah. Her name's not even given. As a matter of fact, her name is so associated with scandal. When I looked for a picture, I could hardly find one that was appropriate for me to even be able to show in the service this morning. And the thing is, is she is not even mentioned by name because it is given about Uriah so that we can see that this isn't just a scandal. This is the scandal of all scandals. This is Watergate. This is Monica Lewinsky. And she's in the right in the middle of it. And she has nothing to do with any of it. None of it was even her fault. You see... We don't really know exactly if Bathsheba, that's the woman's name. We don't know if she was a Jew or a Hittite. We, I, I kind of lean towards she was a Hittite because she was married to whom? Uriah the Hittite, right? But while her husband one day is off battling with the armies of Israel, David is supposed to be there battling right beside him. He is Israel's champion. He is the one that is supposed to lead them forward into battle. But, but instead, he's there on his rooftop terrace, and he's looking over, and he peers, and he sees what is an apparently beautiful woman. And she is down there, and she is bathing herself. And David is overcome by his lust and he sends for this woman to come and to be with him. And I want you to think about the implications of what that meant. He was the ultimate authority in all of Israel and he sends a decree and she could not refuse it. She could not decline it. She could not turn away. And so she is brought into the bedroom of the king unwillfully and abused there. And she is sent home after the king has satisfied his lusts. And word, she sends word to him that they have conceived a child together. And that's where the cover-up begins. David sends for Uriah and has him come home. And his plan is that he's going to send him home to his wife. And sending him home to his wife, he'll sleep with his wife. And then he can believe the whole time that this child was his child. And all the other people can believe that this child is his child. Except Uriah is proven to be a more honorable man than the king himself. Who the Bible describes as being a man after God's own heart. And he will not go. And so he sends a letter with Uriah to go to Joab at the front lines of the battle. And the, the, the letter that he sends is his own death nail. And he, the letter tells, instructs Joab to send Uriah to where the fighting is the, the most intense. And when the fighting is ramped up into high, its highest intensity to pull back all of the other troops so that Uriah is there standing as a man alone that he might be struck down. And he is. That's why she's called the wife of Uriah. It's 
the marker of the tragedy that has become her story, the marker of the tragedy that is her life. So he's he's struck down and David brings her into his household. And I want you to think about this part of the story because I don't think we think about this very often. He brings her in and there she's going to give birth to a son. And she does give birth to a son. And David believes that the cover-up has worked until, until the prophet Nathan shows up at his door and reminds him that no sin is outside of the eyes of the Lord. And the, the Lord knows what David has done. And he knows the lengths that David has went to. And it's going to ultimately cost him the life of not just his son, but of Bathsheba's son too. Have you ever thought about that before? We have this image of David there weeping in his mourning clothes at the side of his son when his son is ultimately taken from this world and transported into the next. But how often do we think of this woman, Bathsheba, who loses her firstborn son because of another man's sin? Yeah, she's become Monica Lewinsky and she didn't do anything wrong. She was chased. She was forced. She was scandalized. She was widowed. She was brought into a strange home. She had her dreams dashed. She lost her son. She lost her marriage. She lost her life. And no doubt how many nights did she lay there in those palace walls believing that God had long since forgotten her. Except God had made a promise to David in spite of David in spite of who he was and in spite of the things that he did, just like all of us, it was with David a covenant of grace that through his line he would make a covenant that his throne would endure forever and that his son would build the temple and that son would be Solomon, Bathsheba's son. That she's on the list because God did not forget her. God used her as a mother of the promise to go forward. Brings us to the fifth woman on the list. This is a famous painting by Da Vinci, a depiction of the angel Gabriel here with the Virgin Mary. And you can imagine that here you have young Mary and she lives in this tiny little town of Nazareth where everybody knows one another and you run into each other at the pack-a-sack getting a barbecue and you rub elbows for just a second and, tell, and catch up about the family and, and talk about the gossip of the town, right? And the football team from Friday night. And she's there and she's planning her wedding and she's so excited as a young teenage bride to have found the man of her dreams, a man of obvious character and integrity. He said, one day the angel visits her, doesn't he? And he says, you're going to give birth to the son of God. Right now, it's going to be hidden, but over time, your belly is going to grow, and it's going to get bigger, and it's going to be apparent that, that you are with child. But, and that child is not going to be the result of a relationship with a man. That child is a re- result of the blessing of God himself, the designs of God himself. Now, she's got to go tell her young husband-to-be about this. How do you think that's going to go? She goes and she tells her her husband-to-be, and it says that he is an honorable man, that he could have had her executed as a result of her adultery, but instead he decides and resolves that he's going to divorce her quietly and try to save whatever part of her reputation can be saved, except that an angel of the Lord visits him at the same time. And it's so convincing, and it's it's such a, a, a transformative moment in the life of Joseph that he becomes convinced that he will endure her shame with her. He will endure her scorn with her. He, she has embarrassed him. She has embarrassed his family, except he knows that it's the Lord, and he will walk with her through all of this. But just because Joseph believed her, do you think everybody else did? No. She had not done anything wrong, but she looks just as sexually promiscuous as Tamar or as Rahab. And when she went into the middle of the, the pack sack to get a barbecue, you know what everybody was saying, and you know what everybody was thinking, and you know how everybody was, was talking about her behind her back as her belly grew, and it became apparent that she was with child. Except it didn't matter what everybody else thought. It didn't matter what the story around town was because she, she was in God's story. She was in the line of the Savior. Her name, her name is on the list. You see, we have these five notorious women that are found here in the list of Jesus, in the story of Jesus. 
but they are reminders that God writes his story differently than what we expect, the way that we expect him to write it. That God writes in his story through the midst of brokenness, through the midst of pain, through the midst of sin, through the midst of brokenness, that ultimately all of this might be put back together again. That God's story doesn't go the way that we expect God's story to go because he's God and we're not. And I want you to see really quickly three takeaways. Three takeaways that we get from the story of these these five scandalous women in the genealogy of Jesus. The first takeaway I want you to see is that there's no turn missing from God's map. There's no turn missing from God's map. I used to go do a lot of hiking with my cousin. And my cousin would, would famously say the same thing every single time the hike got hard. The hike would take longer than it was supposed to say, take. Or we would take, make a wrong turn and end up in some place we knew we weren't supposed to be in. Or, or we would end up beside some landmark that we knew was not supposed to be on our path. And we would be tired and broken down and hungry and thirsty. And inevitably, my cousin would always say, this map's wrong. This map's wrong. This map that we have, the map's wrong. And how many times as we walk through our lives do we look up and we're in a place we never thought we would be, doing what we never thought we would do, suffering the way we never thought we would suffer, hurting the way we never thought we would hurt, and we look up at God and we think, God, the map must be wrong. What in the world is this? Certainly all five of these women had that experience. You can think through all of the sin in their lives. Think about Tamar. Tamar there, she had been married into what was supposed to be this virtuous family only to be treated like she was disposable. She is violated by her father-in-law and his wiles and then accused and stated that she should be burned to the ground in his light of his own self-righteousness. Think about Rahab. How many nights, how many days passed by where she didn't even feel like a human being anymore? Customer after customer after customer. There must not be a God if this is what's real. There must not be anything of significance or value if this must be. There must be no purpose or point to my life if this is what my life's going to be. Imagine Ruth, Ruth, a, a, a Moabite woman who would have been an object in her own family, in her own culture, completely widowed and everything that she endured, all of the suffering that she knew, all of the pain that she knew, all of the insomnia that she experienced, all of it must have felt as though the scorn of God was pleased to rest upon her. Think about Bathsheba, who I think is the ultimate victim in all of this who does nothing to bring these things on herself, but finds one abuse, one objectification, one scandalous treatment after another in her life. And this is supposed to be the man who writes the Psalms. This is the man that is supposed to lead us in the worship of this great God they keep talking about. Imagine how teenage Mary must have felt. She heard all those snickers and all those whispers and all those grumbles behind her back that she couldn't help but overhear. It must have felt like God's map was wrong. It must have felt like there were some turns that were missing. It must have felt like maybe they had personally made some decisions that took them off course, that took them away from where God would have for them to be, that has brought brokenness and pain and suffering into their lives. It must be that God's map is wrong except the genealogy of Jesus, the fact that their lives culminate with this reality that the Christ is the result of 14 generations and then 14 generations and then 14 generations is the proof and the verification that God has accounted for every step in his map. That every sin, every moment of brokenness, every day of pain, it may feel pointless in and of the minute, but there is a big picture in play. There is an ultimate story that is being written. And in that story, God's story is coming to bear. God's providence is unveiling and unrolling one little bit at the time. It's interesting how Matthew does that and how he culminates it with Christ instead of with Jesus there in verse 17, isn't it? 
He says the product of all of these generations. And we're going to talk about the numbers that are related here. That ultimately leads to this generation of salvation is the resulting of the Christ. Not just of Jesus, but the Christ, which is the Jewish word or the Greek word for Messiah. The anointed one. The one that had long been promised. The one that had long been expected. The one, in other words, that had long been planned. You see, we think about uh, Isaiah and what he says about the, the root of Jesse and how he's gonna get, the virgin's going to give birth. And we think about that passage from Micah that I read earlier from Micah chapter 5. And we think about all these Old Testament prophecies and the beautiful picture they paint of us of a Savior that is yet to be born. But what we fail to realize is that in between all of those promises is a lot of brokenness and a lot of pain and a lot of tears and a lot of sin and a lot of hardship. But not one of them, not one sin, not one painful night, not one tragedy abuse, not one moment of excruciating realization in this world is going to take us off path because God's plan is coming to be and in his map he has accounted for every single step. Do you hear the hope that that offers to you brothers and sisters? Do you hear the hope of the Christmas story? The hope of Christ's advent that he has come that because Christ has come and confirmed the realization of the promises of God in light of the sinfulness, in light of the brokenness, in light of the painfulness, the, the hope that each of us have is that this story isn't finished yet. This story isn't finished yet. That in fact, what God is doing in the midst of the brokenness and in the midst of the pain is he is bringing all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. Listen to me, some of you this morning, you, you didn't sleep last night. You didn't sleep last night because you got stuff going on in your life. Some of you, you believe honestly that you've already ruined your life because of the sins that you've committed, because of the, the struggles that you have faced, because of the hardships that you have known. Can I just promise you, by the grace of God, by the, by the testimony of Scripture, by the genealogy of Jesus Christ, by the promises that were fulfilled in His coming, your story isn't over yet, and the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The second takeaway that I want you to have this morning is that there's no story God can't change. There's no story that God can't change. Now, one of the purposes of a genealogy and the genealogy of Christ is that it is showing us that Jesus is a real man. That Jesus wasn't just some angel that poofed onto the scene and Jesus wasn't just some, some spirit of God that descended that was disembodied. That Jesus was a man because Jesus had a family. Jesus had a heritage. In fact, you could go back and, and the people that grew up with Jesus and went to school with Jesus and, and hung out and played touch football with Jesus, they knew who Jesus' family was. It was such that the tax collector, Matthew, he could go and he could find all of the family history of Jesus and be able to tell you this is his background, this is his daddy, and this is his daddy's daddy, and his daddy's daddy's daddy. He knows, they knew the story. And it is evidence that Jesus wasn't just some ethereal experience. Jesus was a real man that walked in real flesh and blood and had a family that was crooked just like me and you. That in Jesus' family tree, there were skeletons in the closet just like in your family tree. That he had great, great, great aunts and great, great, great grandmothers that were madams of brothels too. It's not just me. That is... What Jesus begins to show us by his coming is that your story doesn't necessarily finish the way that it started because he's the truth. He's the truth. Think about the heritage of all of these women, what they were supposed to inherit. Four of them are Canaanites. Four of them are outside of, of the promise. In this culture, it is not like the capitalistic world that we live in. We live in this world where we think, okay, if I am born at this class level, at this socioeconomic level, then by hard work and determination and a good education and good opportunities, I can go up to the next level. I can ascend the socioeconomic ladder. What you have to understand is there was no upward movement in the majority of the cultures that have ever existed. What you were born into is what you were. 
That defined who you were going to be. It decided what your stake in life was going to be and what your career was going to be and what your job opportunities were going to be and what your, your uh, marital opportunities were going to be. All of those things were predetermined for you for a lifetime by the birth that you have. And you have these four women in the lineage of Jesus that are born outside of the promise of God to families that do not worship the Lord. In fact, many families who worship the antithesis of the goodness of the Lord. And it seemed as though their stake was laid out for them. Their heritage was going to determine their inheritance except but God. But God. Not, not only that, this was a, a, an honor-shame culture. And so everything was built not on what your, what your income level was or what your, your education level was or what your resume was. All of it was determined by whether or not you were considered a man or woman of honor or a man or woman of shame. And if you had shame attached to your name, your name was attached to the family name, and that was unerasable. It could not be taken away. It would carry forward from one generation to the next. And so we have four of these women born outside of the, pro of the promise, and we have all five of these women who have shame that is now attached to their name. But let me ask you, how is Mary remembered now? How is Rahab remembered now? How is Ruth remembered now? How, how is Bathsheba remembered now? You see, the point of this story is that within the Christmas story, there are a series of stories that prove and justify for us that who you were does not determine who you now will be. That your inheritance does not necessarily have to be anchored into your heritage. That God is willing to enable and ready to transform your story into a new story. That he's ready, willing, and able if you will come to him through Christ to give you a new inheritance, Christ's inheritance, to give you a new future, Christ's future, so long as you are seen like these in Matthew chapter, chapter 1 as being found in the heritage of Jesus, being found in the lineage of Jesus. And who is it that is found in the lineage of Jesus? All of whom will repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ who has been raised from the dead. This is what the point of uh, Paul, when he's saying second, in 2 Corinthians 5, 16, listen to what he says. From now on, therefore, we regard. What's, an, what's another way to say that? We, we think of or we remember, right? Right now, therefore, we remember no one according to the flesh. That is, according to your last name, according to what your daddy did, according to what you've done in the flesh, according to your worst week according to the skeletons in your closet, according to the affairs that you've had, according to the, the taxes that you've cut, according to the, the money that you've stolen, according to the, law, the lies that you've told, according to the divorce that you've got in your background, according to, to what your kids think of you or don't think of you, that, that you are no longer regarded by what your ex says about you or what your, your community says about you or what your former employer says about you. You are no longer remembered according to the flesh. Why? Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer because why? He was raised from the dead. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, in the lineage of Christ, born into the person of Christ, residing in the new temple that is Christ, that gives us access to the Father. He is what? A new creation. You're not just somebody better. You didn't just become a better person. You became a new man. You became a new person. You became a new creation in Christ Jesus. That is, your old story was wiped away and it was made into something new. And you are no longer remembered for who you were. You are no longer remembered for what you've done. You're no longer remembered for what you've thought. You are remembered for what Christ has accomplished for you. Your story has been rewritten, brothers and sisters. Mary is not remembered for what the neighborhood thought that she was remembered because she gave birth to Jesus. Rahab is not remembered as a prostitute. She is remembered in, in Hebrews chapter 11 as being a woman by faith that God used to continue his story forward. And let me tell you something. If you will find your identity in Jesus and what Jesus has done, that will be the case for you too. Your story is not over. You want some Advent hope today? You want some Advent hope? It's not too late for you. It's not too late for you. You know why? The story from Matthew chapter one, 
It's still in progress, brothers and sisters. It's still in progress. There's not a period at the end of the sentence just yet. There is an era, a new covenant, which has been established through Jesus. That is the culmination of all of these stories. And that new covenant encompasses my story and it encompasses your story too. That brings us to the last takeaway that I want you to see. And there is, that is that there's no people God won't save. There's no people that God won't save. See, the book of Matthew, we're supposed to understand it, I believe, as being bookended. And we're going to get into this again more next week. But we're supposed to see that it begins the way that it's going to end. And y'all, that's what good preachers do, by the way. Good preachers set you up in the beginning for where you're going to end up in the landing. Okay? That's what Matthew is doing. How does Matthew land the plane? He lands it with the marching orders that Jesus gives to his disciples. And what are those marching orders? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of what? Of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. How does he set that up on the front end? You have five women that are in the story. Four of them are Gentiles. Now, I want you to think about that. Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience to justify Jesus as the Jewish Savior. And in that lineage, Matthew takes detours around some of the patriarchs to draw out and point out that as a result of a relationship with Gentile women, the Jewish Savior has come into the world. In the Jewish Savior's veins flows Gentile blood. In Jesus' genetic code, there was Gentile DNA. There was Moabite DNA. There was Canaanite DNA flowing through Emmanuel's veins. See, all of these women throughout all of history, they were breadcrumbs that God was leaving throughout the old covenant that was pointing to us so that we could see that God isn't just saving the Jews. God isn't just saving one people. God is sending a savior for all peoples that through the nations, God brings Jesus into the world. And by bringing Jesus into the world, all authority in heaven and earth will rest upon him and he will bring all nations to him himself and to God that flowing through his veins is the blood of Rahab and the blood of Tamar and the blood of Ruth and the blood of Bathsheba and the blood of Mary and it is the very blood that flows through his vein their blood in his arms that will be poured out and spilled upon that cross that will actually save them and will actually save me. And if that blood can save Tamar and that blood can transform Rahab and that blood can give uh, Ruth a new family and a new identity and hope to, to Bathsheba and salvation to Mary, brothers and sisters, there is no story he can't change and there is no person that he won't save. He is a savior for all peoples of all backgrounds, of all heritages, with all skeletons that are in the closet. See, there, there, there's Advent hope, isn't there? There's Advent hope. Not only is it not too late for you, you're not too far gone. You're not too far outside of the promises. You're not too far from God. Because God, through Christ, has come to you. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. -on -one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.